and welcome to the Spark of Ages podcast, where we're going to talk to game changers of all kinds about their big world-shaping ideas and what sparked them. I'm your host, Rajiv Parikh, and I'm the CEO and founder of Position Squared, a digital marketing company based in Palo Alto. So yes, I'm a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, but I'm also a business news junkie and a history nerd. I'm fascinated by how big world-changing movements go from the spark of an idea to an innovation that reshapes our lives. In every episode, we're going to do a deep dive with our guest about what led them to their own Eureka moments and how they're going about executing it. And perhaps most importantly, how do they get other people to believe in them so that their idea can also become a spark for the ages? This is the Spark of Ages podcast. In addition to myself, we have a producer, Sandeep, who will occasionally chime in to make sure we don't get too in the weeds with tech jargon. Yep, that's me, man. Uh, I'm really excited about this interview because uh, uh, we do interactive technology. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick John's brain John about interactive stuff. John is a marketing stuff. rock star. He's an entrepreneur with three exits, and he's the guy who wrote the book on the latest innovations in marketing technology. Literally, he's the author of Demandbase's Definitive Guide to ABM slash ABX and Marketo's Definitive Guide to Marketing Automation. Uh, that's very definitive. Uh, and spoiler alert to our listeners, the guy that wrote the book on B2B marketing might actually be leaving marketing. We'll get into that. But bottom line, he's an innovator and defining voice in this field, and we're going to find out what sparks him. So, John, it's really great to have you on the show. Thank you. There's so much for us to get into, so much to talk about. I first met you in 2006, I think. And this was your early days when you were just at the beginning of Marketo. And so I'm really excited to have you here so many years later and be, be able to have you on the show and get your background and your spark out there. Um, you've been on so many shows. You guys have your own show at Demand Base that you're frequently a host for. You're a pro at standing in front, of the, in front of crowds and getting your ideas and concepts out to the market. You're a domain expert. So much so that there are folks who in my team are such Marketo believers that they literally wear purple all the time. We, we think they, <laughs> they, they bleed purple. And you've created your own categories and have been a true innovator. So today I want to go on a little bit of a different path than the ones you've gone down before. So let's start with the new path you're going on now. Tell our listeners your big news. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, as you and I have talked a little bit about pre-show, you know, I my my role at demand base has sort of recently evolved. Um, you know, I've been the I've been the CMO at demand base for almost the last three years since we merged engagement and demand base together. And we've recently hired our new CMO here at demand base. And I've taken on a role as sort of evangelist and consultant. Um, so what's exciting about that is I, you know, I get to continue to do what I love and, you know, talk to customers about what's happening in ABM and go to market and share best practices and do all that kind of stuff. But I also have a little bit of time to sort of be working on my next thing and, uh, be candid. I don't know what that is yet at this <laughs> point. I'm just curious about it, like your emotions at this state, like being sort of free, like in this new kind of freed state, like, do you. Are you excited? Is there some nervousness, anxiousness? Like, what are you sort of going through? I'm excited to be excited. Uh, <laughs> okay. And what I mean by that is once I land on the thing, 
you know, I know I'll get really excited for whatever I choose uh, and dive into that. And right now it's more of just like, you know, looking out at kind of a world of infinite possibilities. Yeah. It could be anything, right? I mean, my, my next startup could be literally anything I want it to be. Yeah. This is not going to be like the next evolution in marketing potentially, you know, like in your mind, you have like that Leonard Skinner song, right? you're free as a bird man, bird now. I'm as free as a bird. Is yeah. that, is that where you are? It is. And I mean, I may not stay in MarTech, right? I mean, yeah. um, there's, there's, there's things out there really interesting on the sales side. There's B2C things. Um, AI is obviously so transformative that if I'm going to stay in tech, I mean, obviously thinking about what AI can do, but I'm not even holding myself to stay in software. So we'll see what happens. You and I were just at a recent AI dinner, right? And uh, marketing is just blowing up with regard to generative AI. Uh, the whole thing is transitioning and changing. So it's even hard to forecast where it's going to be in the next year or two. Absolutely. You know, we're going to take you back a little bit. So you have a degree uh, from Harvard in physics. Here's a quote that was written on a profile piece about you that I found interesting. A career in physics is lucrative, said no one ever. However, you can take up physics, do a little bit of fusion research, and then do stints in management consulting, and eventually find your way to being a co-founder of a company that shapes the marketing tech space. Sounds weird, doesn't it? So I just wonder, like, when you originally went into physics, is that just something that really interests you? Are you like a first principles type of person? I was always fascinated with sort of like the, the big questions in physics, you know, like, does the universe have an end? Uh, and you know, is, is, you know, does it infinitely expand forever or will, you know, it eventually contract. And so does time have a start and then a stop to it? You know, just literally questions about infinity sort of always kind of would blow my mind. You know, it's other things like, you know, time travel and, you know, if you could go faster than speed of light, does that mean you're going to go backwards in time? You would sit in general and just wonder about the nature of things. Yeah, it was, it was, and really the, the big, 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 big questions. Really, mm. You know, I, I actually even considered going, you know, one of, the, one of the programs I applied to for college was a dual major in physics and philosophy. Mm. You know, and I loved the idea of kind of like, how can you use science to just really understand kind of the kind of the way of the world? So I'd always assumed that I would, my career path would be in academia. Uh, and I'd mm. go and get a PhD. Um, I spent my summers, I got a, a job at Lawrence Livermore National Labs. So that's where I was doing the fusion research. Uh, and then um, I actually got into a PhD program uh, that ah. I applied to my senior year. Uh, and it was only sort of by sort of chance that I sort of started, you know, even considering, you know, other options. So I'm just curious, like, where, where did this all come from? Like, was it from your parents, you know, the, this this desire to find the answer to the meaning of life, the universe and everything, or was it just your own thinking? It just always fascinated me. Um, you know, I, you know, my, my dad was an attorney and my mom was a teacher, but you know, even my dad did a lot of teaching as well. So I, 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 I will say, I do always sort of say I can't, I come from a family of educators. Hmm. Um, so That's there amazing. maybe there's some connection there, but yeah, the, the direct hard sciences was, uh, just something that, that was fascinated by. Yeah. I kind of think like when you think, when you talk about being into math, right. And then going into marketing. So a lot of what people associated marketing, this is back in even in the in the mid '90s or even before that, is a lot of times the marketer they come up with a brand, they come up with a story, 
they come up with a message and then it, it was a bit of a dark art to figure out if what you're doing is actually working or not, right? And there's consumer advertising where you run TV ads and you do all these surveys and things. You didn't know if you were actually driving any revenue. So is that sort of like, if you, if you kind of play, if you think about that, is that what led you to say, hey, maybe marketing is kind of interesting? Uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was less direct than that, uh, to be honest. I was doing, you know, my summer work at Lawrence Livermore National Labs. I got into a PhD program at MIT, but I had looked at sort of the lives that the physics um, PhDs that I had been working with, the, the lives they had. And, you know, they weren't researching time travel and the end of the universe and everything. <laughs> yeah. They were researching the stuff you can get paid to research. Yeah, right. which is, you know, fusion and plasma dynamics and, and things like that, you know, and, and I was going to end up going to MIT to research plasma dynamics. Wow. I was like, I don't know. Is that really what I got into this to do and and always be looking to get the next grant, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. And at the same time, there was all this recruiting going on for management consulting and investment banks. And I was like, well, that seems pretty fun. And I'll be a totally candid. I'm probably smarter than most of the people doing that. So I should, you know, why should they make more money? Uh, and so <laughs> I, I actually got MIT to defer my admission for a year. And I was like, well, let me just try this other kind of, you know, business world out. Because again, you got to remember, yeah. my mom was a teacher. My dad was a lawyer. I didn't come from even understanding what business was. Like mm, right. I thought people go to offices and like they, they seem to like, send faxes around, but I don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> they, I was like, that's how little I knew. Yeah, they push right. they push things around. So you're sitting here going like, yeah, they're pushing some stuff around. I don't know if it's a real thing. Yeah. And then you go, you have this science experience. And you're like, wow, they're just shilling for research grants and they're not getting to really pursue what they're passionate about. And I was at that firm for a little over a year. And I was, because of my connotative background, I was sort of being put on the more analytical projects. Um, which led me to actually a boutique consulting firm called Exchange Partners. And the founder of Exchange Partners had this really interesting methodology about how to use analytics to understand the value exchange between what a, you put into a customer and what a customer gives into you. And how do you create really valuable experiences that are create more mutual value in the exchange? And he realized that that a lot of the recommendations from the methodology couldn't be implemented without technology. Hmm. So he went and acquired an old marketing technology company that be was originally called Exchange Applications, as you know, in comparison to us in the consulting firm Exchange Partners. That company was successful, was eventually rebranded as Exchange and had an IPO uh, as a successful MarTech company. So when I was getting ready to graduate business school in 1999, I mean, it was 1999. Everybody's going yeah. to tech. It was crazy, you know? right? Mm -hmm. I, it was the internet boom. 99 was the crescendo of the internet boom, right? At 98 I mean, or 99. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I about got out of business school in 97 and I went in and I was, I was like working at Sun and then I went yeah. to Alta Vista. Internet was just crazy, maniacal. So, you know, and I had never thought about, oh, I'm going to have a career in tech. Um... You know, I thought I'd probably go back to consulting after business school, but but it was like, well, you gotta have to work in tech. And there was this company called Epiphany that was just down the street in Palo Alto, 
And they were building a marketing technology product to compete with Exchange. You know, this hmm. company that I sort of had a sister association with. So somehow, despite the fact I had zero experience in tech, I got a job as a product manager there because nice. I knew a little bit about the space. You know, I, so I was in product management for a while there, found myself gravitating a little bit more to the product marketing side over the years. Right. Um, Which makes sense. I mean, you're more, you're more structured and more analytical, so you'd want to create products, right? I mean, you'd want to build things. Yep. And um, so when we finally sold Epiphany uh, in 2004, and it was sort of time to do something next, I was like, all right, I've been doing this for a while. I think I'm ready to run marketing for a little tiny startup. I was interviewing at a couple of different places. And at the same time, that's when I was talking with Phil Fernandez, who had been the president of Epiphany, you know, kind of the, hey, you know, there ought to be a company somewhere, you know, that sort of, that's eventually those conversations became Marketo. Amazing. So it's a little indirect how I kind of, you know, navigated from physics into consulting into uh, MarTech. But there is that kind of a common theme there, I think, of being analytical, being quantitative, and like kind of having like a systems orientation to the thinking. Well, it's, I think it's boiling it down to its essence, right? So, I, you know, when you think about, think about some of the problems we, we, we dealt with before in marketing, we just couldn't measure, we couldn't measure what we were doing, right? Like we were trying things out, we were hoping it worked. Sometimes you, we wonder, was it the product? Was it sales? Was it, was, was it what, what was marketing doing? And you got answers far later. And uh, it sounds like, John, you, by putting an analytical mindset to it, you saw that need at Marketo to, to attach marketers more closely to revenue. I, you know, it, it always has bugged me you know, that you know, marketing doesn't have as much credibility and respect you know, I was talking to a marketer the other day who was talking about how the fact that their CFO has some opinions on the brand. And I asked this marketer if they had opinions on the accounting in, in return. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you, know? you know, and but that's the, that's the nature of marketing. Everybody, you know, thinks that they can have an opinion on, on the brand and the marketing, you know, and whatnot. That's fine. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, but not everybody understands the nuances of kind of what's actually happening in, in marketing as well. So I have definitely always sought to help marketing earn their seat at the revenue table, get more credibility, get respect. Part of that is by using the language of business and not the language of marketing when you're kind of talking outside of, you know, the, yeah. the walls of your own of your own department. And part of it is being analytical and quantitative. I think it was kind of revolutionary at the time. And I, I, I mean, I was there at that time. Um, I similarly started my company because I wanted to take an engineering approach to marketing. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to show directly that what we were experimenting with was turning into actual revenue and demand gen enabled that. And I think you took it a step further, even further, not just on the consumer side, but to the business side, where uh, to make a sale, it just takes longer and it takes more people to drive it and it's harder to measure. And and uh, I think you you pioneered the notion of the the revenue marketer, the the, the notion of the power of inbound. I think it was one of the things you pushed. I, I'm not going to take credit for pioneering all these things. I mean, there are lots of other people. Come on, John. You're on my show. You're, you're going you're gonna to get all these things. <laughs> the Pedowitz group was talking about revenue marketing, were, inbound. Or HubSpot yeah. was obviously talking about inbound. That was um, way later. Come on now. HubSpot. Brian Carroll was talking about lead nurturing before I came along. But you put you it know, together. 
that's what I was sort of going to say is, you know, I think one of the things that I've always done really well in my career is to synthesize things together. Um, and it goes back to that simplify and explain combining multiple trends and patterns and, and things like that. Yeah, see, see, see the big picture, see how the universe works, see if there's an end to the universe <laughs> <laughs> with a philosophical framework. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so then like you had this, you had this great career at Marketo, right? You, you built, you went through a lot of stuff in getting there. This is when I think you said your wife was pregnant and you're about to have your kid and you decided to do a startup, but you went through all that. You went through some amazing trials and tribulations. This is never easy to sell a concept like this. You know, then you got it to a point of success. How did, how did that feel like to go through that whole set of emotions, right? There's a whole range of emotions. If you weren't, if your parents weren't in business before, you, you heard about some of, that, some of this from folks at Stanford. We, you know, you got exposed to tons of business leaders. Was it what you expected? Well, you know, I mean, you're, you, you've been a, a, you're, you're a founder, entrepreneur yourself. You don't start a company thinking it's going to fail. Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you start a company with hopes and dreams, you know, kind of for the success that's going to happen. And, and it's almost like you'd be naive to, like, if you really know, knew how hard things are going to be along the way, probably nobody would do it. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I don't want to say like, oh, I always knew Marketo was going to be successful. Right. You know, but you kind of go into it assuming, yeah, we're onto something. We have a good idea here. Yeah. What I didn't appreciate at the time, though, is frankly, how many things need to come together right. to really make a good success like Marketo. A, like, lot, a, of lot, things, a right? lot of things got to line up right. right. What, what so, were some of the surprising elements that, that had to come together? I think you just you really need the 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 time to be right. You need to have really good product market fit, which is sort of related to that, but kind of could be in separate. And then you need great internal execution. And I I think if you don't have all three of those pillars, you're not going to create a great company. When you're first starting a company, it's it's hard to kind of really see that. Right. You know, even if, if yeah. even if I get to engage you, which we'll talk about in a minute, then you know, my sure. company after Marketo. Right. You know, I'd argue in retrospect, if I look at it, timing was a little early, yep. especially for how we were tackling ABM. That's right. You know, partly because of that, we never quite got product market fit exactly right. But I do think we brought really good execution to the table. Yeah. You know, but you add those together and Engageo was good, not great in terms of success. Yeah. So, I mean, would you say when you, you know, you let you left, uh, you got Marketo to a point of going public You'd be up on stage at Dreamforce, right? The Salesforce, big Salesforce conference, doing all these great uh, discussions about how to, you know, how things are changing dramatically for marketers, right? You had your own big events that that market that Marketo was putting out. You had a whole bunch of adherence to it, and then you said, "Well, I want to go and and do something new. I want to start it myself." Like in the in the last one, in the first one, you were with Phil Fernandez, uh, you know, and you you kind of went with someone you knew. Um, or, or had some familiarity with because you were at a previous company with him. And then you went and started it with him. And then, you know, there was this thing in your head saying, no, I got to do, I got to do my own thing. Or was it, uh, you know what, we're not doing this method of marketing right. And so we're going to go this way. Wh- which, which, which it was, or was it both? Or was it just all these VCs saying, John, if you start something, we're going to throw a bunch of money at you. We love you. <laughs> you know, it, it, so I'll start with like a quick little, you know, uh, <laughs> anecdote. I, I um, 
There's a guy named Clint Orem, who was one of the founders and executive at Sugar CRM. Um, he worked for me way back in the days at Epiphany. I remember having coffee with him in the early days of Marketo. Uh, when we were just kind of getting up and running, I'm like, hey, tell me your, your entrepreneur story. And he said something to me at the time. He's like, you know, Sugar CRM is far enough along now. We're a bigger company. It doesn't feel like my baby or my company anymore. It feels like a job. Yeah. And I remember him saying that. So take that's in my brain. Fast forward nine years later at Marketo. We've had our IPO. We're a thousand people. Um, I We've hired somebody else to be the CMO. And, you know, I'm focusing on some other things. And I realized this doesn't feel like my baby anymore. It feels like a job. Yeah. And I wanted it. I was yeah. like, I liked that in those early <laughs> days, you know, when, when it felt like, you know, I had the excitement and energy of feeling it, you know, like my baby. So so that was really the impetus of it was I, I realized I loved just the startup experience and I wanted to go do that again. You know, and coming off of the Marketo IPO, I mean, I I made less money probably than some, most people think, but I made well en- enough that, yeah. you know, the mortgage was paid and I didn't have to worry about some of the things I was worried about when we started Marketo. And so I had the sort of resources to be able to sort of say, I can do this, you know, you know, with me as the, 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 the CEO lead. And I think I'm ready for that challenge. Yeah. I mean, you had the big win, right? You, you had a win. It was known as, as something that you created and you enabled or key part of, and you had the big win. And you know, at a certain point, with these, when a company gets large, they're running big studies and things take time, and it's all about big coordination. And it feels things take time. It, it man, just takes so a lot sad. of process driving. <laughs> You're talking. You can't just flip on a dime and try something new. I mean, you have some room too, but it's harder. Um, to move a machine and and it just gets more fun to start the next thing, right? And so like Engageo, was there like some, this this one insight that just said, yeah, I got to do that? Engageo started with, with, I want to start a company. You know, in some cases, like where I am now. Yeah. Um, the only difference then is I knew I wanted to start something in marketing. Right. Um, just marketing tech, because that was what I wanted to kind of continue. I had probably four or five different kind of ideas I was exploring, ranging from an ad tech solution to a machine learning based decisioning engine, you know, to what we eventually decided to call ABM. I called it at the time kind of um, out, just more kind of targeted outbound. And then again, you know, a lot of interesting lunches with people where you learn things over time, lunch with Maria Pergolino, who was the CMO, I think she was at Aptis at the time. She yeah. worked for me back at Marketo. And she was like, I really think you should do this ABM thing. Um, yeah. It's hot, it's coming, everybody's, you know, everybody's talking about it. And and so that sort of, you know, that plus like getting some sort of signs that maybe the other ideas weren't as good started getting me really narrowed in on kind of ABM as the right strategy. For everybody, for everybody who doesn't know, ABM is account-based marketing. Okay, cool. I was pretty, I was nodding like I knew. I, I just kept nodding, but I didn't know. Yeah, it's, it's about focusing your marketing efforts on the bigger companies in a very specific, proactive way, as opposed to more broad-based marketing. The analogy is a lot of broad-based marketing is like fishing with a net. ABM is more like fishing with a spear. The idea of this is that instead of just throwing out a whole bunch of messages and hoping something comes up, you really target a company. And when you target a company or target certain types of companies at certain levels of scale, it's just a different way that you sell because it's not, you're not selling to a single person. It's not, 
you're selling, you have to get a whole bunch of people to coordinate their action to make a decision, right? Anything yeah. that costs at least, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars or could potentially completely change the company, it requires a lot of people to get aligned by it. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and, and ABM also brings more sense of, of focus. Yes. Um, you know, you sort of like, I can't, like you have, like it's a, it's a thesis that you need to be personal and relevant and targeted to be effective in today's crowded market. And you can't do that for everybody. So a lot of ABM is just how do I focus my limited resources onto fewer things and therefore be more effective. And be way more effective instead of just spray and pray. And so then you you created Engageo, you had a whole great set of tools to to enable account-based marketing. And then you found that it was a better move to to go and be enabled yourself to be acquired by demand base. Yeah, sort of an interesting story there. You mentioned earlier, like I've created categories. Again, I don't think I've created categories. I think I've found existing categories and exploited opportunity, you know, in there. Like I didn't create marketing automation. Right. Eloqua was around. They were right before yeah, Marketo came along. Yeah, a good friend is Mark Oregon, one of our yeah. early investors. Yeah. And in, in the same way, you know, mobile phones existed before the iPhone came along. Sure. Right. But what happened is the iPhone came along and introduced what has become the dominant design. Mm -hmm. Right. And then once that was came in, it was so dominant. Everyone's like, OK, yeah, phones don't have keyboards. You know, phones are these like rectangles, right. with big screens. Right. And that's what it, that was a dominant design. So right. I believe in many ways it's more lucrative, easier, better, lots of advantages if you can found you know, don't don't create the category, but if you can come in to an existing category and create the dominant design. Right. Like if we look at history on the, you brought up the mobile phone, right? There were many mobile phones, right? There, Nokia had like 30 of them of all different shapes and sizes, all different. You had keyboards, you had pens. Um, nobody was really, you know, you had the trackball, right? Nobody was really using the finger as the interface, right? And enabling it to be this and have a single operating system that can run across so many different applications, right? So there was like, it was a, a, the concept was there, but iPhone made it a singular design. And so your thought was very similar, I think, with some of these. I didn't necessarily know that that was a great strategy doing Marketo, but I learned that that was a strategy for me. So fast forward to Engageo, again, I didn't invent ABM. Um, ITSMA coined the term, and then demand base was out there using ABM as a, as a word. Demand base had been helping to create the market and the category around ABM. You know, so I came along and thought with Engage, you're like, all right, I'm going to go tackle that. And maybe I can build a better dominant design, you know, for doing this. Five years into Engage, you though, what had happened was pretty interesting because I built a really compelling product for kind of, I would say, middle and bottom of the funnel of, of the ABM process. Demand base had kept innovating, and they had built a really amazingly compelling product really for kind of the top of the funnel of ABM with things like advertising and web personalization right. and you know, traffic de-anonymization. It started to become clear to me that the dominant design in ABM wasn't going to be what either of us were doing. It was going to be the combination of the two platforms. Nice. Um, and I looked at my roadmap and it was going to take me three years to get to all the things that I needed 
if I were doing it organically. I started having conversations with demand base and they were, you know, we had enough open kimono that they were able to share that it was going to take them three years to build what they thought they needed. And so once I realized that this mm-hmm. combination was a fast track to what I believed would be the dominant design, it was inevitable that we would find a way to kind of bring these companies together. Um, even though it was bummer for me and a little hard to no longer be the CEO, I set out to build the next great marketing platform and yeah. this was going to be the path to get there. And sometimes, you know, you know, so it sounds like, you know, it's almost like the, you found the, the recess, right? Yeah. You found the chocolate and the peanut butter and you put it together and now you had a dominant design. And so, and I think sometimes the hard part about when you start up these companies, you, you want to be the CEO, you feel that energy about it. And then as part of putting it together, you have to subsume your role and, and be, and, and be part of the team again. Right. So you went back to becoming, I think first you were chief product officer, then you became CMO. And, and so, you know, you got to continue that journey and build something great for people. Yeah. So, I mean, so it's been a little over three years now since we kind of did the merger with, with, uh, Engageo and demand base. And you know, I think we've done some really amazing things and it helps to build the company. Uh, I'm proud of it. I'm not, and I'm still here as a consultant, uh, even as I work on the next thing, but it does feel like a job. We're going to mix it up now with a little game segment called Spark Tank. Because, you know, you guys get it? To the, to the show, Shark Tank? Okay. Anyway, let's dive right in. John, at least one thing that I noticed when I was watching your presentations, uh, I think it's fairly obvious to notice, uh, because you, you break into dad jokes every once in a while. It seems like dad jokes are, you know, if not, uh, there's certainly a tool in your, your toolkit, uh, something you're well-versed in. So what I wanted to do for this game uh, was I wrote some dad jokes myself. I'm a writer. Uh, and then I had ChatGPT. I had AI write some dad jokes as well. And so the game is you guys are going to have to determine uh, which ones are written by me, the human, or written by AI. Um, and then most importantly, we're going to find out whether or not I'm any, if, I, if I'm funnier than, <laughs> than ChatGPT. All right. Um, All right. So are you up for the challenge? I, I really hope you are because every time I've had GPT try to write me a dad joke, it's been really pretty horrible. Yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> I'll say this. I also punched some of their jokes up. <laughs> Because <laughs> I was like, this, I can't, I can't. It's too no, conscious. Let these you're cheating. So it's is it is it's either Sandeep Rin or Sandeep augmented. It's okay. true. It's true. It's it. So uh, by the way, before you go into it, this is this is a uh, John Miller feature. We had him at a uh, a wonderful private event, and and every other slide was a dad joke. So he kept it he kept it rolling. <laughs> I, I love it. Str- it's, it's, see, I, I want to get into the strategy of that. I want I want to understand your uh, the strategic mindset behind that. Uh, but let's let's get into the game and then we'll 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 talk about that. Um, all right. My accountant girlfriend finally broke up with me. She said, "In the end, no matter how hard I tried, I was I just wasn't into it." <laughs> that's pretty good, and I'm, that's that's, good. that's human. The intuit part made it more human. But I I, I don't know. I, I okay. I'll say it's human. Well, I'm into that. Yes, I did write that. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> pretty good. I'll take pretty good as the, uh, the quote there. All right. Number two, what did Steve Jobs say when he saw Rome for the first time? I came, I saw, I conquered. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's pretty good because it uses the I a lot. 
Um, but I, and it's clever. So because it's clever, I'm also going to say this is uh, human Sandeep written. Yeah, especially, I mean, if it's written, you know, I came, right? You know, as, as I, I'm going to assume that was written that way. And if, and if so, then yeah, the, uh, yeah, the eyes are lowercase. I, maybe yeah. I didn't perform them lowercase, but that's yeah. okay. As long as the eyes are lowercase, I'm going is, human. Is there a way to perform lowercase? Is that, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I came, I can I saw, I conquered. Uh, you are both correct. Two, uh, two. Yeah, look at that. Uh, look at I that. did write both of those. All right. Um, so agents, if you're looking out, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm available. Number three. <laughs> What did the Apple Watch say to the broken Rolex? Well, I may be smart, but you're timeless. That's, 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 that's not bad. But again, partly just because some of these are going to have to be GPT, and that was not that particularly clever. I'll go GPT. <laughs> oh, metagaming. You're metagaming now. All right. GPT from John. I, I, think, it's, I think it's GPT, too. I felt that when I... You okay, can't, can't always pick the same answers as John, although you can't, you can't oh. pick a winner. Okay, fine. Okay. But you guys both get a point here. Uh, We're doing this collaboratively. Three. It's not competitively. <laughs> okay, okay. We, that's right. It could be a co-op. We're, we're, we're right. a co-op. We're a co-op. All right. Well, you both got it right. Uh, that All was, right. in fact, now there was a little tweak to it, but uh, yeah, that, that was still mostly, <laughs> mo- mostly uh, uh, GPT. So it was even worse before you tweaked it? It was even worse, yes. <laughs> okay. Because it wasn't, it wasn't terrible, which yeah. is my general conclusion. Feeling about most of the GPT jokes. Number four, we got three more. How did the farmer turn into a tech entrepreneur? The only thing they could grow was their Instagram following. Oh, see, I I think I yeah I feel like that one is GPT. I I agree. I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm basically going with how funny they are. You guys are you guys are sniffing them out. This is not going to pass the Turing test anytime soon. (laughs) Cheat GPT. I mean, not for jokes. Definitely not not for jokes. Not for jokes. That's what I'm saying. All right, two more. Here we go. What do you call a startup that only some people believe exists? A Sasquatch. (laughs) All right, I like that one, and I'm just going to assume this is Sundeep. It's just too clever again for GPT to do Sasquatch. It made me laugh, so I'm going human. Yeah, yeah, human, correct. You guys got it. Ding, ding, ding. Five for five so far. All right, finally. Why did the Tesla car blush? Well, it mistook the charging cable for something else. Talk about a shocker. (laughs) Okay. I don't think that was that funny, but I don't ever see GPT being risque at all. So I'll actually lean human on that one too. Suddenly created jokes are like, they they just connect things that a normal machine wouldn't connect. So I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with you, John, on this one and say okay. this is GPT. Okay, here we go. So now we're gonna have a winner. This is perfect. So Rajiv, you say it's it was GPT. John, GPT. you say it was human. Well, guess what? This was the most integrated one. So in a way, you're both right. But this was a chat GPT driven one that I definitely I I added the you shocker enhance. joke. There's some enhancements. <laughs> <laughs> I had to. All right. Uh, so was so, it was it GPT three point five or four that? You yeah, were it was three point five. I'm gonna I'm gonna edge it out <laughs> just barely to John because uh, you know he's our guest. It's just the, it's, the, it's the right uh, thing to do. It was, uh, it, was, it was a collaborative effort the whole way. You're so. such an Indian. I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, guests are gone. Guests are gone. <laughs> uh, John. So hey, what's your favorite dad joke? And maybe t- t- maybe give us a little insight on the your your love of dad jokes and like why you weave them into your presentations and yeah i don't know if i have a single favorite um okay. one i like these days a little bit is my geography teacher asking me to name a country with no r in it i responded no way 
Mm. Oh. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it always takes that second, you know. Uh, the, the, good, uh, the good dad jokes take a second. Of take a second. Yeah. Right, here's, here's one that's even harder a little bit. Yeah. So I have a fear of overly intricate sets of buildings. You could say I have a complex, complex, complex. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> All three definitions of a complex. complex yeah, well gonna, played. I have a complex so, just thinking about um, it. Anyway, I, 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 I got a lot more of them. I mean, where it came from, to be totally candid, is I'm just not that funny. Um, <laughs> and I always like a presentation presenter on stage who can crack some jokes and make the audience laugh. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that naturally. So I'm just yeah. going to do it unnaturally. And then after doing it and having it work out pretty well, it just sort of became my thing. Well, it, t- it totally works. It keeps your attention, you know, uh, it, it sort of yeah. snaps you back into attention sometimes if your mind yep, is starting yep, yep. to drift. Uh, yeah. Good I think, stuff. I think in today's uh, mobile phone interrupt driven world, uh, which I do have a rant about, a total <laughs> interrupt driven world, it's a good way of capturing people's attention and bringing them back. Yeah. I think bringing it back. To, people yeah. are just all, all right, over So I'll the place. give you one more that's sort of appropriate um, as we're doing this one. So the my coworkers they always laugh at my jokes when we're together, but never over online meetings. It, tur- it turns out I'm not even remotely funny. I laughed ahead of time because I knew uh, I, this, I knew this one was coming. I, I heard it's it from your presentation. Online, <laughs> <Okay>. remotely, <laughs> strong, strong. I like that. Good end. Good end to that one. I like that. Here's my rant. Nowadays, the app makers and the phone folks. All these guys know that we are so easily, we're so ADD. And then on purpose, whenever we go into their website, their app, they're always hitting us with an interruption. I think the reality is that's a a side effect of the fact that attention is so scarce. Everybody feels like, oh, I have a moment of attention. I need to sort of somehow maximize, to take take advantage of it. Um, it. But it's at the cost of annoying the consumer. So it may not be the right strategy long term, but there's an awful lot of marketers and folks out there who, you know, they're driven to, but their metrics drive them to suboptimal near-term strategies. Yep. They, they, they just drive you up the wall. So that's what it is. So John, if you were to think about, um, people who take risk like you do, they just don't, you know, yeah, your, your parents, you know, your father went down the attorney path. Your mom was a teacher. Your mom's a teacher. It just doesn't happen, I think, for most entrepreneurs. There's something like literally you bumped in and said, you know, I have this dream to be an entrepreneur. That wasn't me. No. It really wasn't me. Um, wow. I mean, even when it came down to starting Marketo, um, you know, I I was interviewing at some little startup. I was interviewing at Fair Isaac, yeah. um, which is yeah. a neat company. I was like, because it was like, how can I use my data and analytics skills? Well, that Fair Isaac does neat data and analytics stuff. Yeah. So yeah, fair, the, the one for, was, for everyone who doesn't know, Fair Isaac is the is the algorithm that underpins your FICO scores. Yeah, and then they actually do have a bunch of other algorithms too. But that's the one they're, they're oh, is they're that most the FI in FICO? Yeah. Oh, just learn that. You learn Great, something every you. day. Mm-hmm. The the job I almost took instead of Marketo was to be a forester analyst. Oh. Um, and because be I sort of, of thought you'd be, be fun one of like, those, one of those folks on stage. Yeah. You would be on stage. I like the writing and the presenting and all that kind of stuff. So that's why I thought that might've been a decent job. And I like the fact it would get me to travel out to Boston a couple of times a year. I love right. Boston, but the, you know, but so, and then there was Marketo and I was like, so literally I was evaluating these different opportunities. It's like, which one's the best job. 
And obviously Marketo had more risk behind it, but because I was doing it with Phil and he was putting some money in, he was the CEO, he was more experienced executive, you know, it really felt like it made the risk pretty tolerable. And then I discovered I loved it, <laughs> you know? So, so you learn by doing. Yeah. And then once I discovered I loved it, then A, I wanted to repeat it and B, I had the resources to be able to manage the risk. Yeah. And I think after Marketo, people were coming to you. I mean, a lot of times people feel like if you nailed the first time, especially in business to business, they feel like you could do it again. Because uh, as another one of our podcasters told us in, or podcast guests told us in business to consumer, it's kind of a hit driven thing. You, you get it and you may not get it again, but in business to business, once you start off down a path, your customers will help you if you if you gain resonance with your customers, they will help you, right? And so they probably saw that, hey, you did it, you did it, you nailed it. Let's do it again. Yeah, that's the hope, and that's interesting. I hadn't heard that sort of about the sort of business to business versus business to consumer. Yeah, it's a it's a thing. I, I've seen this with v, it's, I talked about this with VCs. You may have a home run with some product, and you just you just caught a wave, and it may be you or it may be not you. And it's hard to do again. Well, one, one of the elements of the three pillars you talked about was timing. That was the first one you mentioned. I feel like that's that's the one that's maybe most out of your hands in some respects, right? right. Um, well, you get to pick the business idea. Yeah. That's so true. so you you, know, it's, it's about how you then, then sort of evaluate the timing, I guess, yeah. is, is the part where you actually have, a, have some, some agency, yeah. right? Right. But a lot of entrepreneurs do get so enamored with their idea or even worse with their technology or their solution that they sort of ignore, like, is the timing right? Right. And I think this is where you have to be very open to listening to feedback from what you believe is the right customer. And of course, you have to pick the right customer and the right segment and all that. But you really have to be open to it because if they really like you and like where you're going, they'll tell you. And it's a smaller world of people who are very similar that'll help connect you, and which is, which is different than consumer behavior. Right? Yep. About it's masses. tough though, because you, know, you go do these customer interviews and like... People wanted to like tell you good job and like tell them they wanted to, they want to tell you they like your thing. Right. You know, and you have to re it's a real skill to sort of get good at asking people sort of the questions in the way that will actually have them tell you that they think your baby's ugly. That's right. That is the hardest part. And it's really about who are they leading edge? Are they trailing edge? Are they in sync with you or not? There's a lot that goes into that, right? Which is which makes it even more difficult or more challenging. So John, based on that, what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone starting their career in B2B marketing? Yeah. I mean, the one piece of advice I would sort of always try to give people, like, like I mean, if you could literally like get somebody to sort of, you know, take this is to just try to embrace continuous learning and adaptation. Um, you know, whether it's marketing or anything else, I mean, these, these are constantly changing, evolving things, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like industries. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you're able to, you know, have that kind of learning mindset, see how industry is changing, what technologies are changing, kind of just that curiosity, I think that, you know, pays off, you know, really, really well. You have to be able to tie that curiosity though with the ability to actually kind of execute and get some stuff done. What would you say is your favorite technological innovation or invention? What was the thing that, that made it feel like magic to you that sparked it to life to get you to build technology for people? Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly I'll share my favorite technology that 
you know, as I said, my path to sort of being an entrepreneur is slightly, slightly different. But the the one, I mean, one that I always point to is just like seems like magic is Google Maps. You know, I, <laughs> totally. I remember yeah. working at Epiphany in you know 2000. You know, commu- living in San Francisco, driving to San Mateo, and like what route I'm going to drive home. Yep. You know, each day was always like like trying to like before I would leave, I'm like trying to look up traffic reports and which way do I take 101 or 280 and where's the you know. And the ability to just like punch in where you want to go and have like a traffic optimized route is, you know, that we can just always have access to, to me is really, really amazing. You know, and then over the years, they've added all these other things. Like right. I use it to plan bike rides. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know how much elevation is ahead of me. I Find love the best coffee shop on the way. You know? I love search along my route. There's like an omniscience to it, right? You're like, wow, you get this yep. sort of cosmic point of view on the world that you otherwise couldn't get yeah this question maybe also if i can take us a slightly different direction for for a half second go for it um please bring us a spark for the ages so everybody's talking about ai right now um and like you gotta have ai in, in your next solution i feel like what everybody's doing mostly though is how do i use ai to solve existing problems better and like like SDRs send emails. How can my AI make better emails for my SDRs? That to me feels like internet 1.0, mm. where it was popsicles.com. I'm going to sell popsicles, but now I can sell them online. Where the real excitement from the internet came was internet two and perhaps three. But but really when it was businesses like Facebook or Uber, you know, or YouTube that like couldn't have existed without the internet, but aren't dot com straight up taking an existing business right and the question is what is going to be ai 2.0 that's something i'm thinking about uh i doubt i'm smart enough to be the one who like really figures that out for like a major business idea but when you asked about a technology that truly seemed magic you know one that always kind of comes to mind is like silly silly little small thing but my kids go to sleepaway camp and in the past Every day they would load up photos from camp. And my wife would spend an hour playing Where's Waldo, looking through every photo for some (laughs) sign of life of your kid, that your kid might be happy and smiling or standing next to a friend while at camp. And then last year, they introduced AI facial recognition, you know, to this thing where you can load up a picture of your kid. And now... Mm. You just get a notification every time there's a photo of your kid, you know, loaded. This is not like yeah. a revolutionary business it's idea. Not. You could you could but pull that. You you have the location. You mm. you can uh, you you can match it against other data of places that look like that. So you can basically figure it out. Right, the system should be able to figure it out. It just, you, you load images. your kid's photo, so it just says, "Here's yeah. photos of your kid." Right, and like right. write you it, know? write it, write the description. So it's it, it's felt it feels like magic because it just t- takes yeah. a problem and it just inst- make just makes it work seamlessly. There's got to be there's going to be ideas, you know, that AI unlocks, you know, that I think truly is will just be sort of that next level. Um, I'm ex- I don't know what it is. I'm excited for that though. Well, Sunday has a question he's dying to ask. All right. So, so I'm curious about your take on, so the marketing world is, is moving to this cookie-less world. And I know my brother was earlier on the pre-show was talking about how, well, you know, we, we can hack around that potentially, but I'm curious, like, 
you know, we're, we're moving this cookie list world and we're driving, is it possible to drive better signals from interactive content and direct cons- customer engagement with that content? Like I create interactive shows. It's part, it's one thing that I do. So th- that's our, that's our thesis. So I'm curious what your, what your take is on that. Well, I mean, to me, that's a flavor of just first party data. It gets almost into zero party data, depending on how you set up your interactive mm-hmm. you know, content. Generally, that's the trend everybody is sort of moving to- towards for the cook of this world is, you know, how to take better advantage of that zero and first party data. You know, we absolutely see that in B2B and ABM, you know, the, just the rise of the importance of taking advantage of the data, using it properly, using, using it effectively. So I guess, you know, to sort of your, your question, you know, specifically, yeah, interactive content, direct customer engagement is kind of frankly, always going to be better than cookie based third party information. Um, marketers just have to sort of get good at using it. That's right. I think we have to derive it, how we, we have to be better at, you're supposed to use third party cookie information to do a better job with first party information so that when that person comes, you're preparing it with something better. But, um, I agree. I think that's the game. It's all about being much more interactive and being very personal to what you want. It's almost good advertising, good content, get to people, get people right. to where they want to go. Okay, cool. So one of the things, John, I know you love is you love cocktails. I do and, love cocktails. And uh, I had the wonderful pleasure of being with John at this amazing place in Austin, this underground uh, bar where it not only mixed the history of cocktails, but it's but also amazing cocktails. So which what cocktail would you say, if you were to list three of them or even one of them that you love and the history behind it, what would it be? Yeah, I've been drinking a lot of the the classics this year or recently, um, or or kind of slightly modified classics. Probably my biggest go to, you know, is just the Manhattan. It's oh, yes. easy to make and it's classic for a reason. But I'm having a lot of fun with you know you can really change the whole profile of a Manhattan by ordering a quart by adding a quarter ounce of something. You know, a quarter ounce of creme de cacao makes it into like an interesting dessert drink. Well, especially if you use like walnut bitters instead of Angostura mm. bitters. I'm also a big fan of Amaro's, which are kind of, you know, Italian liqueurs, stands for bitter. There's, you know, literally dozens, if not hundreds of ones you can kind of get. Um, they're all very really interesting play- profiles. Quarter ounce of an Amaro to your, to your, uh, Manhattan is kind of so a whole new once drink. Once again, you find the categories so, and then you create the dominant <laughs> version of it with some <laughs> some uh, special sauce mixing the two things together. Love it. One of my, I'd say one of my favorite things uh, when I, uh, sometimes I just love the way it's presented. Like there was that one cocktail that we had where it had milk in it, but it was clear. Oh, a, clear, a milk punch? What? I, it was like... I couldn't get it. I was like, "How?" And it didn't sounds taste like gastronomical. Like it was delicious, something or other. No. Oh, it was so so what happens is when top. you mix um, milk with uh, alcohol, it co- the alcohol causes all the milk particles to, so or sorry, curdles, the solids right? in the milk, yeah. to curdle. And then if you filter that through like a, a fine cheesecloth oh. or something, you know, you the curdles stay behind, and what you end up on the other side is a clear uh, a clear drink that has some of kind of the creamy mouthfeel and texture that you would get from the milk. Um, it doesn't taste milky per se, but no. you get, it definitely has a really interesting mouthfeel. 
Um, and it's a cool way to make very innovative drinks that are, you know, in some cases, perfectly clear. Uh, see, so from physics to chemistry, here we go. We're going full, 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 full circle full here. Force. This is so much fun. <laughs> All right. So John, now, now let's pretend Now I know you're, you're looking at your next thing, but let's pretend that money is no object and you can just do whatever you want. Uh, it could be TV show, book, podcast. It could be maybe mixing drinks, making drinks. It could be anything yeah. you want. Uh, you, uh, money's no object. You can do whatever you want. Like what pops to mind? This is the wacky thing I said at the beginning of the call. Yeah. My wife has her own direct-to-consumer shoe business. Uh, and you know, she always tells me all the time, what I really need is a marketer. <laughs> uh, because she, she's, she's the merchant. Yeah. She knows how to design the shoes and get the shoes and sell that, but she's kind of figuring out the marketing on her own. Wow. So you are, you become the DTC guy. You are the, you go from B2B marketer to direct to consumer expert. For the next few months, at least I'm, I'm probably going to, you know, be spending at least some of my time helping to run marketing for a, uh, direct to consumer shoe brand called Bells and Becks, Love and uh, you there know you who knows maybe if that actually really helps her business take off maybe that's what I end up doing you never yeah. know yeah. make it bigger than all birds bigger bigger and better you can do it awesome awesome well John thank you so much for coming in today and spending time with us and sharing with us all these amazing insights and uh, experiences that you've had uh, in just growing up, being part of the industry, enabling new companies to grow, and then talking about your next ambitions. I just love having you here. So thank you so much. Great conversation. Thank you. Hey, that was an amazing interview. I really enjoyed talking with John. He's just so full of interesting insight. And I love the fact that he always wants to figure out how things work. And that's what got him into physics. He's well-planned, but at the same time, he has this notion of letting things flow. His great advice was like adaptability, right? Like, and, and being able to, yeah, go with the flow. And yet he comes from this uh, wholly, holistically, you know, hard sciences, analyze, experiment, test, repeat gather data for perspective. And it's, it is really cool how he, how he sort of marries those two aspects of himself. All right. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the pod, please take a moment to rate it and comment. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts can be found. That's right. And the show is produced by myself, Sandeep Parikh, and Anand Shah. Production assistance by Taryn Talley. Edited by Sean Mayer. I'm your host, Rajiv Parikh from Position Squared, a leading growth marketing company based in Silicon Valley. Come visit us at position2.com. This has been an effing funny production. We'll catch you next time. And remember, folks, be ever curious. <laughs>